Hello everybody, it's Doug Lynch with another Jellybean podcast. This one coming to you from the School of Law in Melbourne, which we'll have to explain in a minute, where I've been hanging around with a bunch of philosophers. Um, today I've brought you, well you may not say it, but um, probably one of the biggest names in medical ethics in the world today. I've got Professor Julian Sabulescu, the Uehiro Chair of Practical Ethics in Oxford. Hello Julian. Hello Doug. Now Julian, first of all, tell us how does a person get to be something like the Uehiro Chair of Practical Ethics at Oxford? Where did you start? How did you get there? So I originally studied medicine, uh, and I was always interested in philosophy at high school and, and, and actually religion. And I studied um, philosophy as an extra subject in medicine with Peter Singer in 1982. And I found this absolutely fascinating because for the first time I heard people giving arguments that I could understand, that were logical, that were based on values that I thought were reasonable. Uh, and that led in directions that, that were surprising and challenging. And I thought about leaving medicine, but I continued on. And um, when I finished medicine and was working as a young doctor, I decided to do a part-time master's while, while I was a resident. And um, again, I loved this. And uh, I decided I'd work very hard in medicine. And uh, I decided to do a PhD in, in bioethics before I... Uh, did specialist training. I was going to be a neurologist, and and again, I loved that, and uh, just had um, I was able to publish some papers and win a scholarship to go to Oxford, and I always intended to return to medicine, but I just had opportunities, and um, I just sort of went where my interests led me. So I, I never decided to leave medicine. It it just happened as um, another career kind of flourished. And I think I was lucky uh, because at that stage there weren't really many people in bioethics that had a medical degree and, and then I, I got good training at Monash University with Peter and the philosophy department there was really one of the world leaders at that time with Michael Smith and Frank Jackson and Ray Langton and Richard Holton. So I was in a sort of niche area and at a time when when um, bioethics was taking off with the Human Genome Project. So when I started, my, my friends used to laugh at me and, and say, when are you going to give up this ridiculous sort of indulgence, you know, and come back to medicine, because I had a top medical career uh, open to me. And um, the only thing at that time was really euthanasia. And, and so that's, in fact, what I did my, my um, PhD on. But with the Human Genome Project, you know, there were a lot of jobs around and, and, and not much good work being done. So, you know, I was, I was very lucky to be in the right place at the right time. Well, so many things work like that. But the, Peter Singer, I mean, that was a, he's now in Princeton, right? Isn't yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. He's half-time at Melbourne University, half-time at Princeton. Okay, so very fortuitous, I mean, but wonderful opportunity to learn something about it. I think anybody that's doing medicine, you have those chances to do something like an intercalated degree or something like you did. I mean, you've got to sort of grab them. That sounds like a fantastic way that's worked out. But like you say, you started off doing something which seems really kind of obvious to us as clinicians, the people that are listening to this. But then you ended up uh, and, and doing your PhD associated with that. But you've become uh, probably best known for stuff related to bioenhancement and drugs and sport and, and ethical, sorry, the um, genetic stuff related to your genome. We were talking yesterday about the genetic modification of children and whether maybe we've got a moral obligation to do this sort of stuff. I mean, you became, you're involved in some pretty controversial areas. 
Well, one of the advantages of having a sort of medical and scientific background and also, you know, having worked with scientists, you know, when I worked at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, is you can sort of find out where things are really going and and try to make a prediction about um, what are going to be the big issues. And so, you know, to take, you know, two examples, the doping in sport issue, I just gave this to a student, actually, an undergraduate medical student as a as a project in, in about 2002. And it, it became obvious just from her work back then that the doping was incredibly common and that um, it was going to be very difficult to detect. And, uh, and I sort of saw this as a test case of, of being able to enhance human capacity. So I just wrote something back, back then and, you know, about problem and, and legalizing doping in sport and and actually that prediction was correct and each year you know the sort of things that that I've written are sort of borne out and likewise with with the human genome project it became obvious to me you know at that time that not only could you do genetic testing for uh, diseases you could also test for things like intelligence and you'd be able to select those characteristics in embryos so you know, I started to look at the ethical implications of those possible trajectories of science and, and how we should think about them. And one of, the, one of the sort of advantages of not having a particular faith or ideology is, is that you can see where, what, where the arguments lead and where the, what the issues are. So, you know, I've often embraced positions which people find controversial, but, but I actually think they're completely commonsensical. So my most sort of infamous idea is that we should, um, we have a moral obligation to select the best child. But, you know, if you went to a doctor, you know, and asked them, you know, do you think I should um, have a child now that I've just got back from Brazil, um, you would expect the doctor to say, no, you ought to wait um, you know, six weeks until the risk of Zika has passed and, and because it's better to have a child without microcephaly and intellectual disability. And that's just a common sense way of talking. Likewise, if you, know, you went to the doctor thinking about having a child uh, and you said, you know, is there anything I can do to you know, improve the pregnancy? And he said, you can take this vitamin that will increase... Uh, your child's um, IQ, but it'll take you six weeks. Um, the child that you'll have in that six weeks' time will be different to the child that you have now. And if you think you ought to take the six weeks' course of the vitamin, you think that you ought to have a better child. So I don't find my ideas actually that controversial. Well, we're basically doing that already in so many different ways. And y- your suggestion is that look, we're, we're being hypocritical by suggesting that we wouldn't consider other enhancements because we are actually practising that but we're just not naming them as such. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the key, you know, basic ethical tools is one of consistency. You know, and another argument I give is if, you know, somebody told you that, you know, there was, you know, lead in the water uh, and it was reducing your IQ, you'd rush and, you know, start filtering your water to preserve your IQ. But then if I say to you, well, you can take this drug or, or this vitamin that will increase your IQ, you say, hey, you know, now you are talking about enhancement. But if we think preservation is uh, important, um, 
I think we should also, the value that's driving that is the, the value of, in this case, you know, intelligence, and we ought to also enhance that if it's safe. So I think many, much of our ordinary ethical thinking is dominated by psychological biases, and in this case, it's the, the, you know, the arguments against enhancement are often expressions of what you might call the status quo bias, that we're just better off uh, staying with, with where we are, or the nature bias, a bias towards you know, things that are natural. So, and so when I found myself looking at the medical ethics course that I'm doing here with you and learning from you, so we've got a strange power imbalance here, Julian's in charge, um, but the, uh, you know, I look at all these various different subjects and some of them seem really hot and interesting, but probably possibly quite far away from clinical medicine, but there's actually tons of them that are still completely relevant to clinical medicine. So, for example, we were talking about conscientious objection the other day, we were talking about whether or not it's actually okay for people to say, no, I won't do that, no, I won't see such and such a patient, no, I won't do an abortion or I won't do a late-term abortion, and this sort of stuff, now, which seems like something that oh, only happens every now and again. You did a, a survey or a study across in the UK which came up with some startling results, which I don't suspect a lot of people know about. How many people were willing to conscientiously object on the basis of their faith in your study? Well, it wasn't actually my study. It was a, a study okay. in, a, in the journal that I edit. Um, but a substantial proportion of uh, Islamic medical students believe they shouldn't have to examine... Uh, patients of the opposite sex and and you know that's the sort of more controversial end of uh, you know faith-based conscientious objection but of course it's much more common in in Australia and the UK to have Christian conscientious objection to performing abortion or even providing contraception and and you know in the future euthanasia and and my argument has been that we ought to give we ought to separate um, our faith, or indeed our secular values, uh, our personal values, from um, medical practice, at least when that practice is in, in conformity to, to ethical principles. So when we have a debate around something like abortion and we make it legal as a society, patients have a right to access that um, service in an equitable uh, and uh, non-judgmental um, environment, and they they ought to be provided with it. And in practice, conscientious objection expresses a negative view and often places obstacles. In the U.S., uh, a large survey showed that around thirty percent of doctors wouldn't ref in practice refer on uh, when they had a conscientious objection to things like uh, assisting dying or abortion or emergency contraception. So. You know, there are other alternatives, and ethics is about exploring the reasons for having policies. So in Sweden and Finland, there is no right of conscientious objection. So employers can consider individual doctors' requests, but at the end of the day, the doctor is there to provide a service. And you know, I believe that's a superior model because it, it guarantees more patients' fair access um, to services that, as a community, we've judged ought to be provided within within medical practice. So, you know, one of the ways in which we could improve medicine would be to either select people who were prepared to offer the services that we've come to judge are a part of ethical medicine, um, or remove, uh, you know, a legal right of conscientious objection, or uh, indeed 
um, perhaps set up a, another profession to provide those services if there are not, not enough doctors. But again, it's important to, people will say, look, we won't get enough doctors unless we allow conscientious objection, or the doctors won't be as good, um, or they won't be as committed. But experience from Sweden and Finland shows that's just not the case. Now, maybe Australia is a lot different to Sweden and Finland. Maybe it's a lot less advanced. Um, but, but I'm hopeful that, that we, could, we could do as well as those countries. And but Sweden and Finland is, of course, um, large public health service. There's no significant private sector and so on. So there is a difference between working in the public sector and working in the private sector on this because you can essentially set up business saying, I will only see red-haired Christians, and it's a private business and you're able to do that. Do you well, think there's some double standards with the public health sector? Oh, sorry, what do you want to, sorry, do you want to Well, I mean, you can't, I mean, you can't discriminate against people in, in, um, in, 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 in the private system, but you do have freedom to to set up, uh, you know, your practice in the way, you know, that, that, that you want, provided you're not breaking any laws. And, and so my arguments have not been of what should happen in the private system. It's about what should happen in public medicine, where we've publicly had a discourse around some ethically controversial practice, like, say, for example, contraception or abortion. And we've decided that as a community, we think that's a good thing that ought to be provided to people. Um, and it, it ought to be provided professionally. Now, many of us have very reasonable um, values that might conflict with, with medical practice. So, for example, you know, I know you're a vegetarian and um, you know, my wife's a vegetarian and many of my colleagues are vegetarians. You know, you might have an objection to using animal products in medicine, and that's a very reasonable objection. But the place to express that objection is not at the bedside, by administering more expensive or less effective treatments to the patient. It's about lobbying at a policy level or a legal level about you know, how medicine ought to be conducted and the role of animals in that. So it's the patient shouldn't be the one to suffer for the sake of, of, of this kind of, of discourse, which is important, but not at the bedside. Oh, look, I, of course, I completely agree, but then people probably would have predicted that if they'd listened to this podcast before. The, um, but So, interestingly, you were talking to me about this conscientious objection, or talking to the class the other day about it, and you were talking about putting out quite a controversial blog post. So you, you actually exist in this sort of world of, of putting stuff out completely free. I don't actually have to be a student at Oxford in order to hear your stuff. I mean, you put a lot of stuff out in blogs, podcasts. Well, where does your stuff go? And, you know, do you have somebody helping with that? Or, first of all, where can people find things that you're writing? Yeah, so our website, um, um, you know, www.practicalethics.ox.ac.uk you know, hosts a blog, um, and that blog, you know, is, is put out almost daily, and it's free. We produce podcasts, which are free. They're all, you know, you can access from the website, as well as most of our articles we make, make freely accessible. So we've had a strong commitment to... Um, to public education and also supporting people in other institutions. I just saw today Oxford is, is, has been ranked for the first time as the top university in the world by the Times Higher Education Supplement. But ever since I came to Oxford, having, having come from, from Monash, I, I thought, you know, we've got a commitment to host visitors, to give public lectures, to go to, to other countries to, to support colleagues. So we do a lot of that stuff and, you know, I think that's an important responsibility of people who are lucky enough to be in institutions like Oxford. And the stuff that you're putting out, and it's completely for free, is quite controversial. I know you've had, you've had a presence in the media, you've been on some major panels, you've talked to some 
very um, impressive audiences. Given your, let's say, what other people consider to be controversial positions on things, what happens? Do people, do you get attacked? I mean, do, what we call, we refer to things called ad hominem attacks in, in, in ethics in terms of people attacking somebody. Yeah, look, you... in, in my lifetime, I've seen a shift. So I, I read this book, 1984, in, in, in high school, and, you know, this, this was predicting, this is before 1984, um, was predicting that, you know, the state was going to, you know, be engaging in surveillance and thought control and censorship and so on. And in fact, you know, I don't believe that's the case, although there's the sort of Snowden uh, kind of concerns about the government. You know, I haven't experienced myself any interference from the government. Uh, what I have experienced is another kind of censorship, and that's the censorship of, of the mob on the internet. And, you know, the internet empowers people to collect together to write whatever they want without any kind of control or norms or etiquette or legal oversight and it doesn't have to be true and they can write to the vice chancellor they can write to people in the university they can demand that you be sacked which they regularly do and i mean you know um the university has a kind of reputational interest and it's very difficult now to actually say controversial things with any kind of certainty you always feel as if there's a kind of hand on your shoulder or somebody looking over your shoulder and you know we I have to say uh, both at the Journal of Medical Ethics and you know the Hero site have to self-censor we have to vet things to see whether they can be misused um, against us um, because as I said there is you know no real justice um, in the way in which this sort of discourse occurs, it's it's really just you know you can lose your job in a day for just something that somebody's taken out of context, and it sits on the web forever, and anyone can use it in any way. So we regularly get stuff cut and spliced, and pictures, you know, um, doctored. So you know I've never advocated infanticide, and I've in fact argued explicitly against it. But because my journal published an article that rehearsed a, an argument that was over 30 years old on infanticide, you know, I became the poster child for hatred of philosophers who would advocate infanticide. So if you go to Google Images, you'll see a picture of me with a uh, slogan, kill the babies, under it. And, and in fact, my daughters have, you know, mm. brought this to my attention. And when I go overseas, people bring this to my attention. And there's nothing I can do about it. And, um, you know, it's, we live in an ugly and dangerous world. And, and, you know, we're increasingly, you know, having to respond to that in the only way that we can. And that is to, to, to try to censor what we do and say less. And, and I think... You know, the world is a worse place for having less academic freedom. It's paradoxical, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, if you're going to be involved in bioethics, I mean, the whole purpose is to get that conversation out there, to get people thinking about it, and then to actually have to rein it in. It, you know, it, it, it's damaging, surely. Well, it is damaging, but, you know, it's, um, you know, it's a question of whether you, you know, want to die for or lose your uh, position for the sake of, of a cause, and... You know, it's uh, you know if you do that, you you know you can't actually you know take forward any causes. 
Um, so, you know, it's a tough one. And I know a lot of people who are more junior than me, I'm lucky, you know, it, it's fairly hard to get rid of me. Um, but, you know, I know people who are more junior now think, you know, much more carefully about what they say and what they write. Um, and, you know, that's only going to get worse because there is no, you know, I can't afford to sue people and the university isn't going to sue them on my behalf. And in fact, you know, when uh, somebody complains about, you know, even not posts that I've written, but but posts that I've hosted, that, you know, the problem with blogs and, and, and social media is they're not academic articles, because some of them are kind of loosely argued, but make a point. Um, but if they, you know, if they create a lot of controversy or resistance that alienates, you know, interests to your employer, then, you know, you become a liability to to your employer so it's um it is it, it is a sort of changing world and one which you know i don't think that people have not really i think accurately identified the extent of of this problem of of this indirect censorship through through the you know kind of a collective collective action of you know extremist or fanatical or ideological groups on the internet um so you know it, it's it's it, it's a difficult situation and i've just written a paper with one of my one of the doctoral students in the center about shaming on the internet and the ethics of shaming and you know this is an area where you can um you people have enormous power today to shame individuals and to you know cause them to lose their jobs and and that and that's essentially a return to punishments that you know we got rid of through due legal process but they've returned on the wild west of the internet uh in an entirely you know unregulated un uncontrolled way and you know we we're we're sort of we've you know society in many ways with the internet has decivilized but that's very interesting we, in, with, in the world of this free open access medical education thing that this podcast will go out and we have our own little version of this in terms of like your responsibility to educate and there's a, a, a gap in the sort of what used to be called the peer review process so we might put out some educational idea but you, you know anybody can pick that up and run with it and if it's picked up wrong or it's construed wrong or, or even that it wasn't taught right it, it potentially has an effect and it has a direct effect on clinicians so there is actually a, an interesting area in there and we've been doing a bit of hand wringing over it there was, I mean, some very interesting things that were done and innovative things that were done and published and talked about and there were a discussion on the internet, but people actually started doing them almost before, um, and, and indeed some cases before, they were then published in what were considered to be the major peer-reviewed journals. On our side, there's an interesting debate that goes on between whether what we're doing in terms of FOMED and so on is going to completely change the way people educate themselves, but also where things like even the biggest journals, such as the New England Journal, um, you know, my, how they fit into the ongoing world. So it's, it's I mean, there are really interesting parallels. The other thing that you mentioned the other day is that sometimes you're asked to come and argue on something, talk about a certain subject, and you wouldn't necessarily be presenting your own personal beliefs, but once you've said it, you might, people associate that with you and say that, like, you, I, I think, I can't remember the example you gave the other day, you came and gave a talk, you were asked to speak about something, and, and, yeah, and I mean, people I, say it's, it's, yeah, that's what Julian thinks. Yeah, I, I see my job as to as putting out arguments to stimulate people to think in you know in the public sphere it's not about me as an individual or what i stand for or what i think is correct so for example in doping in sport you know i don't couldn't care less you know personally about about you know what the regulations are on drugs in sport but i think there are arguments that need to be made and considered in order to make progress in policy and you know i was asked by 
by um, one of the British medical journal group journals to write an article defending the obtaining of consent for the use of discarded tissue you know, from surgery for research purposes. Now, I personally don't think that we should have to obtain consent for the use of tissue that's been discarded for, for you know, medical research. But they asked me to put that side in a debate and, and so I argued for the, po- for the position that's opposite to what I personally believe. And, and it's actually one of my most cited articles. Um, so I think it's, it's well, another one of the problems of my job is that people want to think of not of people as professionals but as, as individuals. Um, and they, the, pro- the public-private um, distinction has been completely eroded. Everyone is a, is a public... Their private life is a public... You know, you know, as a public figure, and you know, I I think that's again another problem with um with 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 the way in which you know societies evolve that there is, you people are concerned about surveillance cameras, but the actual erosion of the private is and and this this idea that we can't just be professional public figures is is an important erosion of privacy. Um, so you know. I, you know, I'm not sure what to do about that, but um, I guess, you know, I've, I've sort of taken up the job and, you know, I'll kind of keep trying to give the arguments as I see they need to be made. It's interesting because that brings us back full circle to the whole idea about a doctor not bringing their personal beliefs and imposing them on somebody. That's right. I think that, you know, how you live your life, whether you practice religion or not, or whether you're a vegan or not, um, you know, is entirely up to you. And what you do as a professional is is guided by the role of, of that profession. And as I see my profession is I'm not a missionary. I'm a my job is is to get people to think for themselves and to, to provide arguments to stimulate public debate. It's not to decide what society should be doing. That's a political process and a democratic process. It's about you know the marketplace of ideas. And and, and often I try to push the ideas that that aren't getting a run, even if I don't... Uh, because that's how you make progress, through dialogue and through an, an active exploration of, of a wide range of different ideas and by considering the arguments for and against. Um, but the kind of censorship of, of, of the internet, um, this erosion of the public and private means there's more and more pressure to narrow the range of, of ideas that are put in the, in the public domain. Julian... We could keep talking for hours, <clears throat> and uh, but, but thank you so much for taking a bit of time to talk to me, and um, I look forward to seeing how people uh, react to this one when it goes out of the podcast. And um, well, Good luck with absolutely everything. I'll be following what you're doing. And All right. Good on you, Doug. You're doing a good job. Thanks, mate. Bye.